This is an ABC podcast. Good morning, this is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, we look back at the life and controversial leadership of former Tongan Prime Minister Pohiva Tunetoa. A man that came in for a very short period of time, held things together, while Tonga tried to sort out what was going to be the future. And Maori wooden panels lay buried for two centuries to protect them from British colonialists. Swamps were known as excellent preservation places. And some bad news as you wake up this morning, the price of coffee is set to climb. The, The temperatures are changing, so you can't keep growing you know, certain qualities of coffee in the same location forever. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. First though, thousands of people in Papua New Guinea may have fallen victim to an apparent online scam which promised cash if they watched movies and wrote reviews about them. It's called Golden Sun and has been hugely popular in Papua New Guinea, claiming links to Hollywood film studios. But now the scheme seems to have collapsed, as Marion Farr reports. Did no one come to save me just because they missed me? One of the biggest grossing film series of all time, Pirates of the Caribbean, is still popular with movie fans. But a pirate is free to make his own way in the world. So when PNG resident Abraham Tamsin was told that he could earn money by watching these movies and others, it sounded like a good idea. They said, we are going to do a movie review and they will pay us for that movie review. His cousin sent him a link to a website called Golden Sun. It cost him 700 kina, about 350 Australian dollars, to sign up. And he says he was told all he had to do was watch short clips of blockbuster movies and submit positive reviews to earn points. The out-of-work university graduate was told those points could then be converted into cash. Excited to earn money, he got straight to work. I spend most of my time, almost 80% to 90% of my daily hours on this. On Facebook, friends bragged about all the money they were making through Golden Sun, claiming it was linked to major movie production studios in the US. At first, it all seemed to be going well. Abraham Tamsin submitted reviews and then converted the points he earned, with the money landing in his bank account soon after. But last week... When the 25-year-old tried to make another withdrawal, he ran into trouble. Everything just went blank. I can't log into my account or even contact the regional managers because their account was deleted on Telegram. The website has now disappeared and Mr Tamsin says he realises that Golden Sun was a scam. I have lost around 300 plus, 360, 70. Dr John Cox is an anthropologist and an expert in pyramid schemes in PNG. Uh, People being promised unrealistic returns and with no real explanation of how that money's being generated. So uh, it it looks like a pyramid scheme to me. The operation also caught the attention of PNG's central bank, which said it had become aware that a company calling itself Golden Sun PNG Limited claimed it was set to get a financial trading licence. It said that claim was fraudulent and that the company wasn't authorised to take deposits. The model is completely unsustainable and usually after about six months or so, 
when the hype is at its highest, they'll collapse in a greasy heap and the promoters of it will sort of mysteriously disappear. Golden Sun PNG Limited hasn't responded to the ABC's request for comment, and PNG Police haven't responded to our question about whether they're investigating. Dr Amanda Watson, an expert in digital communication in PNG, says increased internet access is allowing scams to run rampant. These things can spread fairly rapidly through social media platforms. As for Abraham Tamsin, he's just trying to put it all behind him. Yes, I'm angry. I'm angry at the same time. I thought to myself that was my mistake. I made the choice to go for that. But anyway, I learned from that. That is a PNG resident, Abraham Tamsin, ending that report from Marion Farr. And for more on the story about the Golden Sun scheme, Marion Farr spoke with Michael Kabuni, a PhD student at the Australian and National University in Canberra. I've, I've seen similar schemes before, and they all go bust. And then PNG has become kind of this hot spot for schemes like Golden Sun. Uh, I don't know why, but whenever there is a new scheme in PNG, it seems to have a huge number of following. And the concern is not that, you know, it's not only limited to uh, those who are, you know, those who have not advanced in in, in education and stuff like that. It, even the most educated university graduates are part of schemes like this. And and I mean it, it's got all the all the features of a a Ponzi scheme. They don't offer any product or services. Uh, they don't have a office in PNG. Uh, the central bank has come out and said they have no association with Golden Sun. The whole premise of Golden Sun is that people who sign up um, have to kind of go online and review movies to earn points, and those points can presumably or supposedly be converted into cash. Would you say, is that a unique kind of setup or a new setup Um And why might it be particularly effective, this whole thing of people having to review movies? So people are led to believe that this money is coming from uh, the United Kingdom uh, because the website of the website of Golden uh, Sun claims that it's registered uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, But Bank of Papua New Guinea uh, confirmed, sorry, Bank of South Pacific BSP confirmed that uh, the payment is actually transferred from within Papua New Guinea, from a bank account within Papua New Guinea to another, to the to those that are subscribing to the scheme. Mm. And um, what would that suggest to you? Well, first of all, the the website claims that it's a you know UK based organization or a bank. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, and even in Papua New Guinea, uh, they are not registered with, you know, if you're a business operating in Papua New Guinea, we have a brands in Papua New Guinea. By law, you're supposed to register with the Investment Promotion Authority uh, and have a business uh, operating account with one of the major banks to accept deposits and make payments. 
Do you have any idea, is there any guesses at how many people have signed up to this? I don't know, but I've got about 2,000 friends on Facebook and let's say two out of 10, every 10 friends I have on Facebook might be involved in a scheme because that's how many people I see posting on Facebook. That's Michael Kabuni, a PhD student at the Australian National University, who's speaking there to Marion Farr. Pacific Beat. Former Tongan Prime Minister Dr. Pihiva Tuinetoa has left behind a complicated legacy following his death on the weekend. He was 71 and had been ill for quite some time. Dubrovka Volodya looks back at his life and controversial leadership. He was Tonga's 17th Prime Minister, but to his former professor, Janik Ratatunga, he was also a friend. At Monash University, when I was a professor at Monash, he was one of my master's degree students. And he was, of course, excellent in his uh, studies. Pohiva was uh, a very humble person. He also got a doctorate in divinity after he finished with Monash and he went back. Um, So he was a very uh, religious and pious person and uh, a wonderful person. Professor Ratatunga, who's now the chief executive of the Institute of Certified Management Accountants of Australia and New Zealand, says he will be remembered by many. With uh, master's degree students, we were tended to not have any uh, demarcations of uh, professor and student. We all went out together. He was very quiet, probably quiet for a Pacific Island person, but then he went on. After that, I really lost touch with him in terms of seeing him until uh, we heard about his prime ministership. Dr. Tuyonitoa became Tonga's prime minister in 2019 and served for two years. He was a finance minister and an auditor general before his prime ministership. He took office after the death of Aklisi Pohiva, who led many reforms in the kingdom. Tongan journalist Kalafi Moala says his time in the top seat was limited and provided the glue the kingdom needed. He would be remembered as a, a man that came in for a very short period of time, held things together, while Tonga tried to sort out what was the, going to be the future. But his tenure was not without controversy. Mr. Moala again. There's all kinds of allegations about corruption in, in government. Part of the difficulties we have to deal with here is, here is our own way of doing things, the Tongan way of doing things. And for example, I remember being in a press conference where I actually asked him directly uh, whether a decision he had made was an example of a conflict of interest. And he responded and said, There's, that's not a conflict of interest because uh, if your brother or if your close friend can do the job better, why not give it to them? And we were talking about the awarding of particular contracts for road construction to companies who were run by relatives, friends of the government, or even people who are in government. So uh, those are the kind of things that came up and uh, made him controversial. He survived a vote of no confidence in parliament, but he faced legal action. There was... uh, legal action against him for bribery during the 2021 election. And the court case was held in 2022, and the Supreme Court found him uh, guilty of bribery. He appealed, 
the um, appeals court accepted his appeal. He was um, freed. Despite the controversy, Professor Ratatunga says his legacy will be remembered. He used to be uh, really a good friend to most of the people he came across with. Dr. Tuyonetoa was the member for Tongatapu 10. He's survived by his wife Hena and his children and grandchildren. Dubrov Kavolida with that report. It's time to find out what's making news around the region this morning on Pacific Beach. And to do that, as always, we're joined by Carl Evans. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Priyanka, and happy Tuesday to you. Happy Wednesday. Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> you took me by surprise there. For the record, I had a long weekend, okay? So my, <laughs> That's uh, true. Yeah, my calendar's a bit messed up. That's true. You were away on Monday. Um, yeah, so Tuesday to you, Wednesday to the rest of us. <laughs> um, let's start in Solomon Islands, uh, where we know that the United States, um, a special Indo-Pacific uh, ambassador, coordinator, I can't remember quite his title, Kurt Campbell was visiting. Um, he said that the United States has to do more in the region. Why is that? What, what, what exactly did he say? Yeah, that's right. It was one of many things uh, they discussed, which uh, was mainly around regional security uh, and domestic issues. But uh, Campbell basically said that the US uh, has critical strategic and uh, historical interests with the Solomon Islands. Uh, they've got territories in the region, such as American Samoa and Guam. And uh, it's in the interest of the Solomon people that uh, that more nations are engaging with them uh, on their terms. So that might, that might mean things like, you know, increased visa collaboration, uh, things like educational scholarships to allow sort of, you know, more students to go over to the US and travel and uh, and things like that. But one of the things that actually stuck out to me is, is one of the more interesting things from that uh, from that meeting was that Campbell seemed to give the assurance that the US do not in any way want to, want to establish any sort of military presence, uh, external military presence uh, in the region. Uh, he said that uh, the bases are not in the best interest of peace uh, and stability. So uh, Yeah, they're, they're odd in remarks considering they already have bases in Pacific, you know, they have, they do have um, Guam, of course, is is the um, most well known, known U.S. U.S. base, I guess, and has been, um, you know, quite critical for for U.S. Uh, strategic relations in in the region. Um, so yeah, perhaps perhaps he doesn't want to expand that. Um, but there is a lot of expand military expansion in Guam at the moment. So uh, yeah, very very interesting remarks. And another interesting remark, I mean. We, we spoke to Kristen Rita Almano Leong a couple of days ago about this, this, um, arrival of Kurt Campbell to Honiara, but he's not the only one visiting the region. Um, there was the Japanese foreign minister there and also a Chinese delegation in Honiara overseeing the Pacific Games, making sure it'll all go, you know, smoothly. They're obviously funding a lot of that Pacific Games. They're doing, um, helping build the stadium there, for instance. And I understand the United States is also, has also made an announcement around the Pacific Games. Is that right, Carl? They have indeed. So the US Navy hospital ship uh, Mercy will return to the Solomon Island shores for the PAC Games uh, in November. So that'll be there to provide uh, health services to the 24 countries that will be uh, participating. It's obviously a huge, uh, huge hospital ship. So that'll uh, be overseeing, I guess, all, all the health uh, in the region for, for that time there. Um, what was interesting as well is that... Uh, uh, a publication called Free Asia, uh, Free Radio Asia, actually reported that 80 Solomon athletes will be deployed to China as well for Pacific Games training. 
So, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and this is, well, according to the article anyway, uh, there's plans to, like, well, they, they hope to plan to win as many as 40 medals, which is... Uh, the Solomon Islands? The Solomon Islands, which is, you know, I'm mean, not saying it can't happen, but it's certainly ambitious. Yeah, I don't know how many medals are up for grabs in Pacific Games. Um, I think they won f- four gold medals in the last Pacific Games. So, uh, yeah, they de- looks like they definitely want to increase increase that number. Indeed, indeed. And very interesting to see, um, yeah, Solomon Islands are athletes. This is the first I've heard of that. So, um, yeah, I wonder wonder what they'll be learning in China and what China is offering offering them in terms of training. Very interesting indeed. Um, now let's head to Fiji where, um, well, we've been reporting he- here on Pacific Beat a lot about the labour shortages there due in part to um, the, I mean, Palm, the Pacific Islands um, or labour scheme here in Australia and, and New Zealand has a similar scheme as well. That, that some allege are, are taking, are poaching um, uh, highly qualified staff from Pacific countries, including Fiji. But now the government there in Fiji has um, moved to address this labor, labor sh- shortage. Um, what exactly is their plan? So basically, they've started laying groundwork uh, to support uh, a range of educational institutions, so things like trade schools, trade schools to uh, to upskill people uh, in short and medium term vocations, and essentially get them into the uh, job labour force uh, as soon as possible. So uh, this is this was reported by the Fiji Times, and and it's comment, and they've quoted uh, the deputy PM Biman Prasad, uh, who said people more than ever are leaving to take up jobs overseas just because there is so much. Um, COVID demands and opportunities basically everywhere. And as a result, they're just losing so many workers off their own shores. So they'll be looking at strategies to immediately train people in areas like painting and tiling, uh, which are in short supply, just to get them out in the workforce as soon as they can. Mm, very interesting. COVID demand, did you say? I guess that is that a result from COVID you know, impacting businesses in That's the Pacific. right. Yeah, labour shortages, particularly in Australia and New Zealand. You know, uh, so many you know, things like immigrants who who, di- who weren't coming to the country during those COVID years, and there's just so much so much work available. Yeah, it's very interesting because the Pacific also faces those difficulties mm-hmm. with COVID. Um, you know, having you uh, really decimated some tourism industries around the the Pacific, meaning that there are a lot of um, jobs now to be filled now that tourism and and borders are opening. Um, we've spoken to some businesses in the region who say, well, we're there there open for business, but there isn't staff there. Um, so has the government said when they'll actually deliver these changes to try and keep keep folks back back in Fiji? Not in exact terms, but from what I've from what I've read, there's really no short term fix to this. Uh, sorry, um, long yeah, short term fix. Sorry. Um, <laughs> basically, they want to while they want to take immediate action. Uh, there is that broader issue that we just mentioned of there's just so much demand for work, and it's just obviously so enticing for for so many people. So they're going to have to work with partners such as Australia and New Zealand to somehow address that. They wouldn't be the first country to do so in that field either. Um, there's also an issue of a, a failed scheme that was also in the article by the former government, uh, which established 29 technical colleges, uh, which unfortunately all closed down. So that actually really hurt the confidence um, in some of those educational institutions and the trade schools over there as well. So 29, it, that's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. So um, yeah, tw- uh, the cost of about $20 million. So yeah, that's I think just building that culture from the ground up is is probably going to take a little bit of time. Yes, yes, and, and I guess making sure that yeah there is that um, a pool of of um, strongly professional mm. staff that can actually stay in the countries and use their skills um, to benefit their, their their society. Yeah, it is a, it is a difficult balance. Um, let's see if if Fiji can manage to do it. I guess. Um, and now let's uh, head to a very interesting story. A crew has been rescued after their boat was sunk by a whale in the Pacific. 
How is that possible, Kyle? <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is not a uh, retelling of Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> no, Rick, Rick, Rodri- Rick, Rick Rodriguez is an American and his uh, three friends spent 10 hours on a lifeboat uh, in a dinghy after a whale sunk their sailboat uh, back on March 13. So pretty recent. Um, this is reported by The Guardian uh, and The Washington Post. It occurred while they were sailing um, from the Galapagos Islands to the French, to French Polynesia in the South Pacific. And uh, according to Rick, he was enjoying some vegetarian pizza when there was a, a great almighty bang, uh, which which was the whale who... Um, Wanted sma- a slice. <laughs> yeah, perhaps so, yeah. Smashed the uh, starboard side of the boat. And it didn't take long for the boat to sink. It only took 15 minutes. The damage was that bad. Luckily, they were able to uh, scramble into a lifeboat, the, the whole crew. And, uh, and and thankfully, they sent out a, may- a mayday call, which the uh, Peruvian Coast Guard actually heard and, uh, and picked them up. Wow, so a good ending there for something that could have been, yeah, quite dangerous. Mm. We, we all often think about dangers in the sea being sharks and um, un- untimely we- weather. I thought the, the whales were our friends, but um, <laughs> seems seems not. Um, but yes, nice to hear that the crew is um, safe and sound. Uh, yeah, I'll think twice the next time I see a, see a whale. Just... I hope it was a hired uh, sailboat, not his, not his own. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's it's, true. Having that's a life true. is more important. <laughs> and that's true. Another shipwreck to add, uh, add to the Pacific. Uh, Kyle, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was a Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the region. But don't go anywhere. We've still got some more stories from you, including some historical stories. We'll take a look at uh, New Zealand and some Maori panels uh, and, and the history, the very, very interesting history behind them coming up. Pacific Beat. You are listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. The remains of Indigenous peoples from around the world are being brought back from Germany as part of a restitution project. Among them are thousands of skeletons from the Pacific and also the remains of Indigenous Australians. Since 1990, more than 1,600 Aboriginal ancestors have been returned to Australia from institutions and private collections around the world. But there are still thousands more yet to be returned. When Kumara Kelly and Jamie Tarrant boarded a plane to Germany last November, it was the final step in returning Awabikal and Womarai ancestors to country. I just don't think that I could really gauge what exactly I was going to do and how much impact it was going to have on me, I guess. It's November 2022 and Kamara Kelly is on a mission. She's a Waramai woman the CEO of a Wabikul Local Aboriginal Land Council, and she's headed to a small town in Germany to bring home an ancestor. Um, I didn't realise the significance that it was going to have on me. I don't think I realised the depths of that responsibility until I was there, until I was holding them. It was absolutely mind-blowing. Jamie Tarrant is a Waramai traditional owner who works with New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service, who is also on the flight. Uh, we've done some repats here on Waramai country, uh, north of Newcastle, um, but to be able to go abroad, to be able to bring some uh, remains back was just something that's yeah, not even thought of, let alone to be given that opportunity or privilege to um, carry out that journey. Last year, the state ethnographic collection in Germany offered the return of six ancestors to First Nations communities. Historically, ancestral remains and sacred objects were traded, studied and ultimately dehumanised. Jamie was there to bring home a Waramai ancestor, while Kamara was bringing home an ancestor to the Awabakal community. There's not much that's recorded. All we know is the date that he was removed from country, um, which was 1800s. 
And that's about all we really know is that he was a Waramai young fella. So all we know is that they were traded uh, to Germany in 1902. From the anthropological studies, we can assume that it was a middle-aged elderly man. He had passed and had been buried. Each community representative received a box holding the ancestor draped in the Aboriginal flag. To be there for both Kamara and Jamie was indescribable. I had gone over there thinking that I was there to do a job, um, that I was not going to be as emotionally affected as others. But the day that we actually handed them back, they walked through the, the smoke and handed to me. I have never felt anything as emotionally heavy. It was just this, it was incredible. It was the most amazing experience mm. to be have so much emotion put into you at one time. It was just like you're you're happy that it's happening and you're remorseful that we have to do this and you're proud that you're doing mm. it, but then you're so sad and you start to think about the fact that for 130 years these remains have been off country. It's snowing over there and, you know, we're a warm country that think that for 130 years they've been cold and where they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be warm in the in the dirt here in Australia. So you've got all these emotions and you're humbled and you're proud and you it's it's almost like overwhelming to even think about now. Upon returning home, Jamie began the process of finding a place for the Waramai ancestor to be at rest. Um, so we wanted a special place. We didn't know where he came from, um, but we wanted a place where we knew that it was special to be able to lay him to rest. So we come to the second place was Dark Point. That's another known area in Waramai country. So we laid our ancestor to rest there. How did it feel once that process was done for that particular um, ancestor? It was amazing that day. It blew my mind. We had probably 60 to 80 community members on site, um, all back on country to do this repatriation. It was something special. The way to describe it was literally walking from a dark room into a bright room. Um, yeah, it's it um, it's hard to explain, but it's just like everything lifted away. And you know, we we even not had uh, dingoes on site when we we're doing this repatriation. Um, they knew that you know spiritually that there was something going on in that landscape. Um, so them guys even, you know, come and stuck their head over the sand dune to see what was going on. And to be able to, you know, connect spiritually, um, not just with country and ancestors, but, you know, with plants and animals, it's that full circle of connection to lands. It's a long journey ahead to be able to look at the, into the future. But, you know, I think that putting the, our ancestor to rest back onto country, you know, I talk to the elders and go, I'm glad we put this ancestor to rest because he's going to start singing. And he's going to start seeing the old people from overseas. And, you know, I think now we've made that stand. We've got something internationally back on country. That spiritual connection will happen and he'll start singing and he'll start calling them home. For the Awabakal ancestor, there are still discussions to be had about where the best resting place will be. There are still so many ancestors who are not yet home, both internationally and in Australia. But Kamara's proud, though, to be part of the legacy of starting the work of returning these ancestors to country. So it was a really big thing for my family in particular, I think, is that this is the third generation of people participating in repatriation and repatriating our ancestors back to country. While I was in Germany and my sister had sent me sort of like an excerpt of a book that my dad had written and he talks about a repatriation. Um, and in it he says, 
I am so small yet so purposeful. And that was the exact feeling I had is that in a room here, we're actually the smallest little pieces of this giant puzzle and we're not going to be the last pieces. There are going to be generations of pieces. But each piece is so important. That was Awabikal Local Aboriginal Land Council Chief Executive Kamara Kelly ending that story. Pacific Beat. For you coffee lovers in Port Moresby, Suva, Honiara and Port Vila, be warned. The price of your morning a cup of java is about to go up. Well, that's the word from Australian researchers, at least, who are blaming climate hazards for inflating the world price of coffee beans. As Isabel Masali reports, it's probably not the news people want to hear first thing on this Wednesday morning. Perth man Cameron Naldeshani has been roasting and selling coffee beans for 25 years. Like many business owners, he's seen a spike in several of his production costs. So he raised his own prices recently. But by no means is he losing business. It's very, very busy. It's very busy. And what you'll find, and this this was the same thing when the GFC hit and I was around for that, people consume more coffee when they're stressed out. But he is concerned about the impact of climate change on coffee production and what that could mean in the long term. I mean, the, the, the temperatures are changing, so you can't keep growing, you know, certain qualities of coffee in the same location forever. So I think people may have to look at other sources of getting their caffeine and then reducing their coffee intake because the coffee prices are going to go up further, or they may have to go for lower qualities of beans that are not growing in very specific microclimates that produce certain you know, nuanced qualities. Researchers from the CSIRO have looked at this issue in depth and on a global scale, examining the top 12 coffee-producing regions – They warn global coffee production is at risk from increasing and concurrent climate hazards. Here's research scientist Dr Doug Richardson. In some ways, we were surprised at quite how clear a particular signal was. So we expected to see some kind of change in in the way that these climate hazards occur over these coffee regions because we know because of global warming that temperatures are increasing. And what we found is that The number of these climate hazard events in coffee regions has become more frequent since 1980. But on top of that, the main problem used to be that these conditions were too cool, but now it's often that they're too hot. And that aligns with what we know about the impact of climate change. He says if these trends continue, then we might see global shocks to supply. Associate Professor Elizabeth Jackson says it's already a tight industry. She's a food supply chain and agribusiness expert at Curtin University. This is a, an international industry where revenue amounts to, you know, just under 500 billion US dollars. And, you know, it's expected to grow by about 4, 4.5%. This is a big industry. So if there was any, if there had been any room for expansion, you know, into new production systems, it probably would have already happened. 
but we're just not seeing that. So we're really looking at quite a finite amount of um, coffee that comes into the market. And so because of that and because of these pressures um, that the CSIRO report has talked about, really there's nowhere else the price of coffee can go but up. She adds the good news is the agriculture industry is increasingly finding ways to adapt to climate change. But when it comes to coffee... Coffee is mostly grown in low-income countries where farmers don't have the the disposable resources to trial um, new technologies or indeed um, or have have new technologies invested in by government entities. Having said that, however, these countries um, are often gifted with extraordinary amounts of um, global funding for for agricultural development. And even I know the Australian government puts a lot of money in. I think there is a really good opportunity to increase coffee production from the very, very, very limited area that we've got, but that's going to take time. And she says adding to that is the nature of coffee production, which can take years. So for now, coffee drinkers may need to reconsider how much they're willing to pay. That is Isabel Masali with that report. Pacific Beat. In 1971, five intricately carved Maori panels were unearthed in a swamp on the North Island of New Zealand. When put together, the panels looked like a huge shield and were described as a masterpiece of Maori art. The panels are known as Te Motu Nui Epa and they were buried for two centuries for their protection and preservation. Rachel Buchanan is a descendant of Taranaki, the place where the panels originated, and she told the ABC's Richard Feidler about how the carvings were hidden in the 1800s when the British arrived in New Zealand. Many, many important buildings were dismantled and um, the components of those buildings, especially carvings such as the ones that I've written about, were placed carefully in swamps. And the belief is that swamps were known as excellent preservation places. When wood is placed in a swamp, there's no oxygen there, so it really helps preserve it preserves the wood from decay, from mould, from fungus. So it's really bizarre to think of swamps as a repository. I've worked in previous jobs and archives, and uh, you know, archives are temperature controlled, the lights controlled. You can't get anything damp in there. There's just endless amounts of care taken to preserve what's in there. Um, but this was a different kind of repository and a really amazing one, uh, literally under the feet of of invaders. Were these were hidden. And how do you imagine that day when it became necessary? Was it like one of those days where like an apocalypse was upon them and they just had to drop everything and run and, and bury what was valuable? Yes, I imagine it as as absolute terror. I, I think that um, I think everyone then would have had to work really quickly. My feeling is that there was just terror and urgency and a sense of let's quickly do what we can do. We know this spot, this small this small wetland, this ephemeral waterway, we'll put this here quickly now. Like putting something in a safe, I guess, Richard, and thinking we're fleeing this place, but we'll come back to the safe and retrieve our family treasures. I think there would have been a small group of people working to do this. I think there would have been markers placed perhaps near where um, the time were put into the earth or at least everyone would have discussed okay this is where they are when when the coast is clear and things are okay we can come back we'll retrieve this and resume our life that that's what I believe happened but it didn't happen 
It did not happen, no. <laughs> they were placed in the earth. The people who did that, I hope that they escaped. I, I know that some of them wouldn't have, that they would have been enslaved or killed and then, you know, left. And then when people started creeping back in the 1840s and 1850s, it wasn't long before um, yeah, the first shots were fired in the so-called New Zealand Wars in 1860 at, at Waitara, exactly really close to where these carvings were asleep. Um, asleep. And that, so they were just asleep in the earth for, what, 150, 60, 70 years while all this mayhem is going up on the surface. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wow. Just having a nice long doze like teenagers that. just on overdrive, <laughs> just lying there. And, you know, it's amazing that they stayed asleep because the state highway was put through, like, in 1884, the spot where the epaulet is about 20 metres from this big road. You know, they slept pretty heavily. They, they just stayed hidden, Richard, until the time was right. That's how I see it. So we fast forward now to 1971 and Cecil Smart, the farmer I mentioned at the beginning, is trying to dig a ditch or have a ditch dug across the land and Mm. these panels resurface. They come to the surface. Once they'd been spotted, what did Cecil Smart do with them, Rachel? Yeah, well, Cecil... um uh, Cecil was a Pākehā man, a, a non-Māori New Zealander, and he called his mate Melville Manukonga. Uh, Melville ran a souvenir shop on the main drag uh, in um, New Plymouth. I don't actually recall that shop, but one of my childhood mates does. She's like, oh, yeah, we used to, that was near the bus stop. So anyway, Melville Manukonga was a Māori person as well, and he, he came, he said, look, come and have a look, see what you can find. And Melville was um, far more expert than Cecil, uh, actually knew, he, he carefully, um, his affidavit David he gave to the police was that he then carefully walked through around the stitch and noticed faces looking up at him. <laughs> and and I think Melville would have been pretty excited. Uh, he said he told police that he felt like a gold prospector finding gold, whereas Cecil and his brother Morris really had no idea. And when they were interviewed by police, they said made comments like, oh, they were just bits of wood. I, I didn't see any value. I just thought they were sticks of wood. And yeah, I was interested in those comments, which would have been a common response from Pākehā New Zealanders back then. So yes, Melville knew he was much more of the connoisseur who had this eye for value. And he lifted them out um, carefully because they'd had that long sleep. And, and if he didn't if he didn't care for them at that moment of emergence, the wood could just crumble or fall apart, you know. So Melville, probably with the help of Cecil, treated the um carvings with linseed oil and also PVA glue, uh, wrapped them in sacks and took them back to his house in New Plymouth. And there he set about doing, as he described it, further restoration work. And um, Melville Manukonga, what he told police and um, public servants was that he intended to clean the carvings up, so to speak, and present them to the Taranaki Museum. But that didn't happen. In all the legal documents that I had access to, it appeared that Melville was really, really irritated that the director of the Taranaki Museum, Rigby Allen, didn't show up when he said he would. And um, this slight, uh, it's funny, Richard, I think someone getting their nose out of joint or getting the pip (laughs) is a really, really big motivator for a whole lot of things. Um, (laughs) You know, humans don't like being slighted. And I think, yeah, that thing of being offended and just thinking, well, well, if you're not interested, then I'll find someone else who is. And who was that someone else that was interested, Rachel? Yeah. So there's someone else, there was various people that came to Melville's little garage to have a look at these carvings. Um, and eventually one day, a young British art dealer and his wife, so the a couple, Bobby and Lance Entwistle, happened to be travelling around New Zealand and 
He told me that they stopped to get petrol somewhere in the back blocks of Taranaki. Said, look, we're, we're here looking for artefacts. That's their word. Do you know of anyone? And that the, someone at the petrol station said, oh, you might want to try this guy's house. I mean, who knows? But whatever happened, Lance and Bobby turned up at Melville's modest house on the edge of New Plymouth and walked into the garage and saw these five carvings laid out side by side. Entwistle told me that he, when he saw the carvings there, he he felt like he wanted to drop to his knees in front of the majesty of these works. And he and that's what he said to me, um, you know, all these years later. But uh, perhaps at the time, he kept his true response veiled somewhat uh, as... as yeah, it's not a good uh, what, bargaining ploy, is it, to fall to your knees at the majesty of the work before you want to buy it, is it? <laughs> no. no. So, so what did he offer to pay for for these, these panels then? Yeah, there was a bit of argy-bargy and um, at first Manu Konga said, no, they're not for sale. And then Entwistle came back a couple of days later and said, I'll, I'll give you 6000 New Zealand dollars. And uh, that, that was really an enormous sum at the time. Uh, my understanding is more than a year's you know, average income. Uh, so that was a pretty big sum of money for anyone uh, living in, in New Zealand at that time. And uh, Manu Konga took, took the money and um, then the carvings were wrapped in sacks and uh, Entwistle drove off. Uh, he assured Manu Konga that they wouldn't be taken out of the country and that he was setting up some sort of collection on the East Coast. I mean, who knows? It's, it's, it's hard to see how that story would have been truthful. But Entwistle took those carvings and then he put them in a crate and labelled the crate furniture and smuggled them out as furniture to New York. So now the panels are up and running and on their way to New York City. Tell me who it was that Lance Entwistle sold these panels to once he got to New York. Yeah, so Lance and Bobby obviously knew, um, had a great eye for who their market could be, and he got in touch with a man called George Ortiz, who was a Swiss-Bolivian collector of so-called primitive art. And uh, so 1973, Lance makes the phone call. George picks up and says, yes, I'll fly out to have a look. And, you know, in 1973, it wasn't really normal for people to be jetting about, no. um, you know, from Europe to America, just on the off chance there might be something they would like to buy. Once I started looking into it, I was like, where, where did that money come from? I've learned, you know, as a writer, you have to follow blood and money are two really important things behind any good story. And how was he able to do this? And Ortiz was the grandson of um, Simon Patino, who was a Bolivian man who was, my understanding, is a very from a very modest family and um, was working as a clerk in a shop in the Andes. And one day someone came in, couldn't pay the bill that he owed for whatever he'd bought from the shop and gave, and, and instead of money, gave Simon Patino uh, a little slip of paper, which was um, the title to a mine, to a prospecting title on a mountain in the Andes. And that turned out to be the richest deposit of tin in the world. So this, this Fano went from being really ordinary kind of people to these multi, multi billionaires within the space of a generation. So that's where George's money came from. His dad was a diplomat. He grew up on Avenue Foch in Paris uh, with the Anassises and the Rothschilds. So this is a family of enormous wealth and privilege who had, you know, great taste. They were connoisseurs and they loved to collect. So that's George was the person that Lance reached out to. And George came to New York to the apartment in Central Park. And so presumably George Ortiz, the connoisseur, was enslaved by the beauty of these panels as well. What did he pay for them? So he paid uh, 65000 US. 
pretty good profit margin in a, for a, you know, in a few weeks from 6,000 New Zealand to 65,000 US. That's what he paid. But the works had been smuggled out of New Zealand. So in selling them to George Ortiz, what kind of understanding did they have to reach between them? Was there a bit of nodding and winking going on? Well, it's um, imbecile. There was a, a promise made by Ortiz that he wouldn't talk about them or show them to anyone for two years, which is quite unusual. It's um, everyone's very delicate around who knew what and when. So the provenance was absolutely faked. I, I I think it's pretty clear from the evidence I've looked at that Ortiz knew that Entwistle had smuggled these carvings and that they had recently been removed from New Zealand rather than the uh, provenance that they were eventually given, which was that Entwistle had bought them uh, or Ortiz had bought them from someone who had bought them in 1935 in an op shop type of thing, which just seems unthinkable, but who knows? So, yeah, I mean, there was that moment of exchange, Richard, I do think in the early 1970s, this sort of thing was really quite normal. And I think probably it still is normal in some ways, perhaps not for museums and art galleries, but the private collecting world, I think there's a little bit of a nod, nod, wink, wink kind of way of operating where just don't dig too deep. You just want to take things on face value and move on. That was Rachel Buchanan speaking to ABC's Richard Feidler on the ABC's Conversations podcast. And you can hear more of that story by heading to the ABC website and searching for the mystery of the travelling Taranaki panels. And that's the end of Pacific Beat. Thank you for joining me this Wednesday morning. Have a lovely day.